Hello, welcome to episode 19 of the Tar Sands Diplomat, the Canadian satirical diplomatic thriller, being podcast by the author, chapter by chapter. We have been racking up reviews on iTunes and Amazon.ca. Thanks to those of you who reviewed the Tar Sands Diplomat. If you haven't already, please go to iTunes or Amazon and post a review so McGregor can continue his climb up the thriller rankings. And now, here's the author, Keith Halliday, with episode 19. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 22, A Day in the Life of Ian Culloden. As part of our campaign to get to know Ian Culloden, I began taking my morning coffee in the lobby of the Imperatrice. Despite what new recruits may think, salary caps and stingy expense guidelines mean that foreign service officers don't spend much time in luxury hotels. A coffee with a complimentary speculose wafer at the Imperatrice costs more than the department's standard breakfast per diem. I was on a mission, however, and did my best to pretend I was a habitué of luxury hotels. There seemed to be a lot of people in this category. Lean young business people strode briskly across the marble before 9am, either coming in from their runs or in suits on their way out. As they rushed by, I glimpsed the logos of big banks or multinationals on their luggage tags or the PowerPoint presentations tucked under their arms. There were also mysterious-sounding Swiss banks and American investment funds, Snippets of English, French, German, Mandarin, Russian, and a half-dozen other languages filled the air. There were also political and business celebrities. An African president oozed through the lobby with his hangers-on one morning. I also spotted faces from the front pages, or B-list figures like Maxim Mashinsky. I even recognized some bit players, such as Len Sleeth from West Can Energy and his rivals from Franck Energy. This was the world Kennedy was always talking about. At least the old Soviet nomenclatura had the good taste to hide their privileged lifestyles from the proletariat. Come to think of it, being a diplomat gave a person status in the communist system. In the lobby of the Imperatrice, if they discovered you worked for the government, it was almost as bad as only having a bronze-level frequent flyer card. After the new ruling class moved out, the leisure class retook the hotel. Old European money shared the lobby with fresh fortunes from Russia and the Middle and Far East. Culloden may have had some eco-friendly house in the country for the purposes of magazine puff pieces, but he appeared to live in a pied-à-terre in a posh building just down Avenue Louise from the hotel. It was well protected by the usual officious Brussels concierge, plus a professional security guard. This suggested it was home to people who had reasons to need extra security. His day typically began at 6 a.m. with a run. Culloden occasionally met a friend for a short 20-minute jog around bois de la Once we arrived late and spotted him run out of his building with a spandex-clad blonde woman. Either she arrived at 5.45 a.m., or had spent the night Shea Culloden, but we were too far away to recognize her. Most often, however, he led his personal trainer on a long, long adventure through the parks and tree-lined boulevards of Brussels. Lefranc and I watched him run through the bois one morning, apparently determined to set a new record for the paratroop training program, while his personal trainer trailed behind, trying not to cough up too much blood. We couldn't possibly keep up with him. Whatever evil doing he got up to during his runs would have to remain his secret. He usually showed up at the Imperatrice around 9am, dressed in what they call smart casual, and looking ready to jump out of a plane and snap a few sentry necks with his bare hands. Culloden met a wide range of people at the Imperatrice. There were donors from environmental foundations, 
and journalists interviewing him. The Green Alliance seemed to need a lot of lawyers, which wasn't very surprising given how often its activities strayed into grey areas. One morning, we decided to follow him after he left the hotel. I gave him a 50-yard head start, then finished my coffee and threw my overcoat over my arm before walking after him. He walked briskly, which was no surprise given how many miles he must have hiked in the Special Air Service. He had a stylish leather satchel, big enough for a laptop or files, with straps so he could carry it like a backpack. He headed north up Rue de towards the Royal Palace. Although he walked quickly, I was able to follow him without appearing to run. I noticed his head moving from side to side alertly as he walked, and his eyes ran up side streets when he crossed them. At crosswalks, as he waited for traffic, he would turn sideways and check his phone. As he put it away, he would glance up the sidewalk he just walked along. Once, turning down a street with a pastry shop on the corner, he stopped to look in the window. It was a corner shop, so when Culloden looked through the windows diagonally, it gave him a good view of the street he'd just walked along. It was a perfect place to check if anyone was following him. I did my best not to stutter step, and kept walking at my previous pace. One never knows where to look in these situations. Should I look away from Culloden, or would it be obvious I was trying not to look at him? I found the shapeliest Belgian woman on the sidewalk, and glued my eyes to her curves as we walked along. Feeling like a pervert, I walked right by Culloden's pastry shop. My heart was beating rapidly. Culloden was surveillance conscious, as the Frank liked to call it. He wasn't looking over his shoulder like in a bad movie. It all looked natural, but it was clear he made the basic precautions part of his routine. This was going to make our efforts much more difficult. I kept looking ahead as I walked, resisting the urge to see if he was following me. A few minutes later, he passed me at a brisk pace on the other side of the street. When we got to the Boulevard du Régent, he suddenly jaywalked through heavy traffic across the inner ring and headed up Rue du Cal towards the park in front of the palace. Following him would be too obvious. I stopped and called Camille. The French mission was on the other side of the park. I told her he was headed up Rue du Cal and towards the palace, and that if she left immediately, she might pick him up in the park. J'arrive, she said quickly, and hung up. Camille called about 15 minutes later and told me Culloden made two calls in the park, then took the battery out of his phone and walked to a café on Rue des Colonies. When I arrived, he was already inside. He was seated at a table with a good view of the street, typing on a sleek Apple laptop. He bought a coffee, then sat down and opened his laptop, reported Camille. Then he pulled his necklace out of his shirt. He pulled something off his necklace and plugged it into his computer. What? I said. Plugged his necklace into his computer? No, no, said Camille. Something small, like one of those memory sticks. Culloden was becoming increasingly intriguing. Any trouble getting away from work, I asked. No, she said with a smile, but he's a fast walker. With me leaving in a hurry after your call and coming back all breathless 45 minutes later, my secretary will be convinced we're having an affair. She squeezed my arm and headed back to the French mission. The next evening, I followed him to a typical Brussels convenience store called Tabac Press. After he left, I went in and bought some cigarettes and talked to the clerk. Culloden had bought a newspaper and some top-up credits for his mobile phone, paying in cash. When I stepped outside, Culloden had already disappeared into the Brussels night. Other than that, we didn't learn very much following the man. He disappeared into luxury hotels, office buildings, or went innocuously for lunch. Hotel concierges either knew nothing or knew that's what they were supposed to say. Culloden had a second, down-market headquarters in an alternative Flemish cafe on a side street near the official Green Alliance offices a few blocks from the Grand Place. 
This was where he met activists and various mysterious young people with dreadlocks and piercings, usually with reusable coffee cups tied to their backpacks. He hardly ever went to the Green Alliance office itself. One afternoon, the Franks saw him repeat the ritual of making phone calls in the park and then, after removing his phone battery, proceed to a cafe with wireless internet to use his laptop. Lefranc went inside for a coffee and watched as Culloden met a woman Lefranc recognized as a high-profile environmental protester from the Canadian News. She was wearing a jacket that said Great Bear Rainforest, which Lefranc described as the fundraising name to save any trees near Prince Rupert that hadn't yet been made into toilet paper. None of this helped us much. Culloden was a man with lots of things on the go. So what if he made phone calls in parks and checked his email in internet cafes? How could we tell if he was meeting with an avant-garde environmental foundation to get funding for anti-Canadian protests, or some other Green Alliance scheme? And what did it all have to do with Julian's murder? The closest we got was a chance encounter in the Spinakopka, the traditional Flemish eatery on Place du Jardin aux Fleurs, where I took the Candu Canada delegates. Violet and I were having lunch and discussing our lack of progress over Waterzoy and Lapin la Gueuse when Culloden walked in. Fortunately, we were hidden by a large delegation of German bankers, who were whooping it up at the table beside us. Culloden sat down at a table with two men. They looked Russian, but from their clothes and haircuts I couldn't tell if they were government officials, activists, or members of the oligarch set slumming it with the proles. As Culloden sat down, he placed his blackberry on the table with its battery beside it. I noticed the battery had already been removed when he took it out of his pocket, and that the other two men also had their phones and batteries on the table. This seemed to satisfy everyone, and they put their phones and batteries back in their pockets. Seeing my puzzled glance, Violet leaned forward. Something's going on. They do that because it's too easy to track your location with your cell phone, or even activate the microphone remotely. The safest thing is just to take the battery out. I puzzled this out. It explained why they already had the batteries out. Otherwise, the surveillance team might know that all three cell phones were in the same place at the same time. Violet went on to tell me about SIM cards, disposable burner phones, and foil-lined Faraday sleeves that block transmissions to or from mobile phones. I decided I needed to get a Faraday sleeve. Dunscap would never be able to reach me, and I could tell him with a straight face my phone had been turned on the whole time. No one in Ottawa has a Faraday sleeve, I remarked. In Ottawa, they probably still say over and out when talking on their cell phones, joked Violet. I told her how Culloden bought top-up credits for his phone in the tobacco shop I followed him to. In cash, I'm sure, replied Violet, with no link to a credit card statement. She told me about how people also avoided linking their Oyster cards on the tube with a credit card number. No one needs to know that more often than not on Saturday night when I visit London, I go to my ex-boyfriend's tube stop in Islington after the pubs close, she said, pointing her fork at me like I might be just the kind of person interested in that kind of salacious detail. No, no, certainly not, I replied hastily. Well, what do you think Culloden could be talking to Russians for? Violet mused. Maybe he's planning to protest their oil industry too. Maybe those aren't Russian oil guys, but environmentalists. That was plausible. Any Russian environmentalists would have good reason to be worried about blackberries and surveillance. Through the waving arms of the German bankers, we watched Culloden and his friends order lunch. I spotted the necklace with the memory stick around Culloden's neck, and asked Violet what she thought that could be for. Remember, I said, I'm from a town where the latest high-tech fashion accessory is the blackberry holster. This seemed to amuse Violet enormously. The 21st century Ottawa assistant deputy minister is wearing a belt and suspenders, she giggled. Which does he attach his Blackberry holster to? She mimicked the Blackberry quick draw with a smile. 
Maybe we could get rich doing fashion arbitrage by buying Palm Pilots and old Blackberries in Brussels and selling them to your friends in Ottawa. Violet told me there could be several reasons to carry a memory stick. The first was to keep your password safe. You could type half your password in the normal way, but then, in case some bad people have installed keystroke logging software or were filming your keyboard somehow, you copied the other half from a text file in the memory stick. The second was using something called PGP, or Pretty Good Privacy, to encrypt your emails. This used public key and private key encryption. You keep your private key secret, but share your public key with friends. If someone sends you a message, they use their private key and your public key. Then, through a miracle of mathematics, you can decipher it with your private key, without ever knowing the sender's private key. I must have looked baffled. Violet smiled. Yes, it really does work. Unless you're being tracked by a math genius with a supercomputer, you're probably okay with PGP. But where does this leave us? I asked, still confused. Probably nowhere, said Violet. Unless Culloden comes over to this table and makes a full confession, I don't know how we're going to figure out what's going on. He's out of our league. Suddenly, Culloden stood up. Violet and I shrank lower, trying to hide behind the German bankers as Culloden left the restaurant. I sat up again when he was gone, and was about to say something to Violet, when suddenly she kicked me under the table. It's him, right out the window. I looked behind to see Culloden standing just outside the restaurant. He pulled the phone out of his pocket. It wasn't his Blackberry. He popped the battery in and dialed. He was confirming a restaurant reservation, although I couldn't tell which restaurant. His French was perfect, although it had that slightly stilted formality you hear in French spoken by English people of a certain class. I pictured an aristocratic British boy sent to learn French with his cousins at the colonel's house in the Loire. He dialed another number. Hello, love of my life, he said. Still on for tonight? He listened for a second and smiled, saying, Tell me what you'll be wearing. He listened for a minute and then laughed. You'd better stop. If anyone's tapping this call, you'll be making them very jealous. He closed his phone and strode away. Some lucky woman, said Violet with a smile. I wish you'd spend a bit more time with her, I replied, and a bit less time tormenting us. That concludes episode 19 of the Tarsan's Diplomat. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at khalliday at tarsansdiplomat.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for episode 20, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and all your favorite podcasting platforms.